Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And with me, of course, is Nathan Fox. How's it going, Nathan? Awesome, man. Yeah. Springtime, baseball season, um, getting ready for a little summer trip that I'm taking in June and July. It's good times. Yeah, where are you going to go? Um, I am going to Belgium for starters. And then I don't know where after that. I have very loose plans. In fact, I have a one-way ticket booked to Brussels because I have a friend who lives in Antwerp. And I'm going to go. I've never been. And from there, I'm going to go, I don't know, other places in Europe. I have some friends in Prague in the Czech Republic that I'd like to go visit. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I'm going to be doing a little uh, Euro trip. Wow. How long do you think you'll be there? Um, I'm going to be gone for about a month. Wow. Okay. In, uh, right after the test, I guess. Right. A- yeah. Right after the test, I go, I'm going to go visit my friends in uh, Toronto and we're going to go to Montreal together cause we've never been to Montreal. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, from there to, uh, to Belgium and wow. beyond. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah, it'll be a nice little break. You got any big summer plans? <laughs> well, they're not that big compared to going to Belgium. Um, we're going to go to the beach for a cool. week, but nice. uh, that's a pretty standard, you know, thing, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, the thing is actually the classes, uh, my classes start in mid June. So, oh, okay. So it's kind of like the test ends, there's a week or so off and then, uh, class starts again. But, um, yeah, you know, it was interesting. I was driving in today and, uh, I'm listening to the book called, uh, the Last Days of Night uh-huh. by Graham Moore. It's about the fight between Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse over the light bulb okay. and who invented it. And the the main character of the story um, is Paul Cravath of, you know, the law firm in New York. And uh, it centers on the patent litigation that – took place between Edison and Westinghouse. And I didn't know that when I started reading the book. I thought the book was just going to be about, you know, the invention of the light bulb and electricity and how everything kind of took off. Uh, This is the late 1800s. And um, I just realized, I was like, wait a sec, this is all about the patent litigation between these two men and the different strategies they use to try to win in court and everything. So in any case, if anyone's at all interested in patent litigation or um, the history of electricity, I guess, then this might be a good book to read. It's it's The Last Days of Night by Graham Moore. But it's all about law and the strategies that they're trying to use to prove that the patent was legit or not legit or infringing or not infringing and stuff like that. So cool. Yeah. Um, if people have like an idea that it, cause I went to law school with like half-assed ideas about, I want to do IP. I remember mm-hmm. being like, Oh, well, you know, something businessy and, you know, maybe sure. Yeah. Intellectual property. Cause I, it like sounded good. Yeah. Which I think is very common in, in people who haven't really fully formed an idea about why they're going to law school. Sure. And, um, did, I took the survey class, the, uh, like, you know, intellectual property, like survey class. Mm-hmm. And I was bored to like, to tears. It was like, <laughs> horrifying. 
Um, yeah. I wish maybe if I would have read, if I would have read this book first, maybe it either would have convinced me that I'm not interested in that area, or maybe I would have like found the spark somehow. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to being killed mm-hmm. off in some random class. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just with the tedious minutia of the law. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, it it will probably be a biased perspective because it is like one of the most pivotal patent cases, you know, and most yeah. cases are not going to be that way. But hey, you know, well, it's also probably like when the science was still actually understandable by the mortal brain. Yeah, because nowadays when you start when you start talking about IP litigation, I mean, you basically have to be a like an electrical engineer to even understand half of what they're talking about. That's true. Although one thing that is interesting about this book, and uh, it does focus on uh, Paul Cravath, the the attorney for Westinghouse, but um, the, since electricity was so new, there were all sorts of you know superstitions about it, and no one really understood it, and the people who were working on it didn't really even understand it. Um, I mean, they understood what it could do; they just didn't know why, and uh, so it almost seems like, I guess, the challenges were similar. I mean, the science was simpler, but at the same time, you know, the level of understanding of the average person was also lower. So, yeah, right. There, it, it was kind of interesting just to hear all those conversations. I mean, I think the book is kind of doing that to <laughs> give itself an opportunity to explain to you what is going on because I had no idea. But um, yeah. Anyways, it's an interesting book. So cool. We have a ton of stuff to go through, obviously, today. I say we just jump in and see how far we can get and, yeah, go from there. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Sure. So you sent me this thing about um, how much is LSAT improvement worth? I guess this was like some... Well, it's a half-formed idea, but I figured we could hash it out on the show and then I, I intend to write like a blog post about this. Sure. Um, cause I think it would be useful. Not that any, not that people haven't done this before, but I, I would like to just get some thoughts down about it, but uh, you know, it's very useful to, to kick it around with you. Um, first, I think I'll, maybe I'll get the inspiration to actually write something if I, uh, if we chat about it for a little while, but yeah, I just, I stumbled, uh, I stumbled on this page on the Thomas Jefferson school of law website Okay. and we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, and it it just says more explicitly than I thought. It, it really displays. They just they don't hide their scholarship information at all. It's just like here's what you're going to get if mm-hmm. you have these numbers. So they're very explicit that if you have a GPA in a certain range and if you have LSAT scores in a certain range, here's what we give you as a tuition scholarship or you know tuition discount. Wow. Yeah, this is interesting. So a merit scholarship matrix, it seems like it'd be very risky to post something like this because if you reject someone, I guess they have some caveat here. This is just, this is not a guarantee, obviously, right? This is just a general rule. Um, I understood it. Oh, see, so Je- Je- Thomas Jefferson offers guaranteed yeah, in it, italics. It says it in italics twice. So it's like, yeah, I mean, that's guaranteed. And and I also think it's also guaranteed um, you get it for all six years as long as you're eligible to continue enrollment. 
I think it looks that looks to me like there's no renewal requirement. I mean, you'd want to ask specifically about the renewal requirement, right? What does it take to be eligible for to renew the scholarship? But it looks to me, I int- I thought that when they said guaranteed, I thought they meant guaranteed, like you're getting it for all three years for sure. Yeah, guaranteed to retain his scholarship as long as he or she remains eligible to continue enrollment and is enrolled. I, I Yeah, that sounds like as long as you don't get kicked out of school. Yeah, no. So let's actually, there's a, there's another thing that's interesting in this sentence. I mean, we've talked about this before, but it says Thomas, Thomas Jefferson offers guaranteed merit scholarships for first time entering students based on the student's highest LSAT score yep. and undergraduate GPA point, yep. grade point average. So they're just coming out and saying it. This is yeah. nice. This is so clear compared yeah. to so many other schools. Yeah. Yeah. What it's, you know, I mean, transparency is good, you know, instead of like doing shady negotiations with every student and trying to like get the best, basically trying to rip off, trying to charge everybody as much as they possibly can. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson is just like, listen, we know we're low ranked or whatever they are. Who cares? Who cares about rankings? We know that we're not the best school around and we know that we have to give you some incentive to go here and we're going to show you what those incentives look like. And at Thomas Jefferson, I mean, I was just thinking like, okay, let's take a, a, a mundane student, you know, like a, um, let's say you have a 3.1 GPA mm-hmm. and you, you're starting with a 143 LSAT score. Yeah. Okay. So with the 3.1 and a 143, if you're going to mm-hmm. go full time, you go down to the bottom of this table and it says we would give you $4,000. Yeah. That's for all three. You get that every year, all three years, you get a $4,000 discount. So like Thomas Jefferson is admitting, you know, mediocre candidates if, at yeah. a 3.1 and a 143, you know, you're not a strong candidate for top law schools, but Thomas Jefferson is willing to charge you a lot of money. They're going to give you a $4,000 discount, but the tuition is, I looked that up and it was 50 something thousand dollars. I forget Hmm. what it is. $48,000, let's say something like that. Okay. So, you know, they're charging you $44,000 if you're that student. Yeah. But then if you go up the the matrix here and you don't have to go up very far because that 143 student, if that 143 gets a score between 146 and 149, so that's only, you know, a three, a three point improvement. Mm Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden Thomas Jefferson's going to give you instead of 4,000 a year, they're going to give you 30,000 a year. Yeah. If you get it up to 150, they're going to give you 35,000 a year. If you get it up to 154, they're going to give you 40,000 a year. And if you get it up to 158, they're going to give you the full tuition. So I just it just got me thinking like, man, how much is it worth for someone to improve their LSAT score? Mhm. And it's very self-serving for us to go through this analysis, right, Ben? Because this is a good way to justify our costs, our fees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. But I, I mean, I'm not doing it solely for that purpose. I'm also doing it to try to give people some motivation to work harder at their LSAT and do whatever it takes to get their LSAT score where it needs to be. Because we're talking about you move from a 143 to a 155. That's a 12-point mm-hmm. improvement. Mm-hmm. And you get now $36,000 a year guaranteed per year for three years. You get 36000 times three 
is a hundred and eight thousand dollars. Yeah, thirty six times three hundred and eight thousand dollars, and guaranteed. And that t- how long does it take? You know that that twelve point improvement. What does it take to get that twelve point improvement? And f- sometimes it 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 takes two months worth of an LSAT class mm-hmm. and you make that, you make that 12 point improvement and it's worth over a hundred thousand dollars for you to do that. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, do you have any other thoughts about this? This it, th- it's true. That's, that was for a 3.1 student, but the same goes for, you know, even people look down at the very bottom of this range. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's awesome. 2.0. <laughs> you can have a 2.0 L uh, GPA. <laughs> You can have a 2.0 GPA, and if you get a 158 or higher, they're going to give you forty thousand dollars a year in tuition scholarship. Wow, yeah, that's so, pretty astounding. Well, it's awesome. I mean, it in a way it's motivating because I mean, it's I think it should be very motivating because this is what I would recommend people do if they have like really shitty undergraduate grades but they have like a work ethic and they're smart, you know, like for example, if it was me, I have Mm -hmm. very shitty undergraduate grades, but Mm -hmm. I'm smart. I don't have a work ethic, but I am smart. And like I could, I could have gone with, with my, I mean, of course with my LSAT score, but you know, (laughs) I could have gone on this sort of a deal. I could have gone to law school for free and maybe I would have gotten engaged in law school or maybe I wouldn't have. But the point is it wouldn't have cost me just zillions of dollars to figure it out. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on this? Well, <clears throat> my other thought actually has to do with the, the, the law school side and that is running the law school. And I'm thinking about how – like if I, if I want to go invest in stocks right now – I know this seems random. But if I want to go invest in stocks right now, the best way I love to do random, that – I love random analogies, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I make my living. <laughs> Let's hear it. If I want to go invest in stocks right now, the best thing for me to do is to find a some sort of formula that sort of tailors itself to my you know, situation like, hey – how old are you? How long until you retire? Yeah. How much do you have to invest? And then it just tells me to put this money in a certain place and then it can adjust it or move it around based on its own like predetermined metrics, right? Uh-huh. And then I'm going to make much more money doing that than trying to research some sort of company, <laughs> invest the money in that company or you know, try to figure out how much money I should put into foreign stocks. And then when I think something's going wrong in the foreign sector, move it over to the domestic sector or whatever. Like I just, I can't play that game, you know, like I'm just, I'm going to end up losing more money and time and effort, uh, yada, yada. I think what they're doing here (laughs) dramatically truncates the amount of effort that they have to put into deciding who they accept. It's just like, What's your LSAT price? Yeah. Yeah. What's your LSAT score? What's your GPA? Great. Are they going to get some bad apples? Yes. But they're also going to spend way less money and time trying to figure all that out. And the reality is, if you have these numbers, then 
in the vast majority of cases, you're going to fit a certain mold, right? And so it's probably going to work out just as much as you're trying to clever guess the system and find the hidden gems and so forth. I mean, I know students won't like to hear that because like, oh, it just turns this into a numbers game. But when you're dealing with, I mean, even a school like Thomas Jefferson, I don't know how many applicants they get, but let's say you're talking a thousand applicants. That's a lot of stuff to go through. And now you can just plug them into a formula, send them a letter and do this all in a matter of like minutes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also, and for the students too, like, you know, if I would have seen this when I, if I had wanted to live in, in Southern California at the time, yeah. if I had seen this matrix, I very likely wouldn't have even applied anywhere else. Cause I would have been like, Oh, 2.5 or higher. That's what I have. And a 158 or higher. That's what I have. Mm-hmm. Full tuition. Yeah. Boom. One application. Boom. Done. I'm going to Thomas Jefferson. And they are, of course they're rolling the dice on someone like me because I was not a very, you know, like apt law school candidate. I mean, I, I, I just didn't really want to be a lawyer. And, but do you think that, I don't think they could have figured that out from your personal no, statement. No, you're, but you're now also they, smart enough to write something that sounds, of course, interesting, right. you know? which <laughs> is a lawyer. So it's like, yeah. you know, I mean, it's not like I was, I'm a, of course I was a high ri- I would have been a high risk applicant, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been high risk. Like in the way, like not bright enough to pass the bar exam kind of a way. Yeah. Right. Like I, I would have been, um, or not, you know, um, not that the bar exam is all about brightness. There's about a lot of luck, I think involved in that too, and how hard you can work. And I definitely could have not worked hard enough to pass the bar exam. That's, that's a possibility. Yeah. Um, but you know, they would have known that they were getting like a basically bad student, but pretty smart and Hey, yeah, we'll let you come here for free. Cause you, you've got a really credible chance based on your LSAT score alone. You've got a credible chance of passing the bar and being a, sex, a successful lawyer. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so definitely people should check out this, this chart, I think no matter where you're going to go to school, because even, you know, Thomas Jefferson explicitly is publishing this, but at other schools, I think very similar, uh, sorts of things are happening. Well, here's a thought for you. If let's say you apply to several schools and you get into one that you want, and then there's a a school that you maybe you've gotten into, but you're definitely not going to go to because if, unless, unless things dramatically change, you're definitely going to go to this other school that you prefer more than the school that we're talking about. What you do, you have nothing to lose. In other words, with this school, you take this link, you take this URL and you email it to them and you say, Hey, I noticed Thomas Jefferson has this nice metrics. Do you, do you have anything, uh, or matrix? Do you have anything like this? Um, you have nothing to lose, right? Cause like, you're not going to go there anyways, if, if they get whatever. And at the very least, maybe we can start encouraging schools to come up with this. Yeah, it'd be nice. It would be nice. I mean, there, you know, schools aren't going to want to do it because they want to do the individualized negotiations. Yeah. Like when, when people don't ask for more money, they want to be able to charge them full price. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, yeah. but yeah, Thomas Jefferson, they must be saving so much time on their, cause imagine, so now Thomas Jefferson can, can actually take the stance, Hey, we don't negotiate scholarships. Like yeah. if you, if you put this matrix up there, you could just be like, listen, this is our, this is our, we're, we're laying it all out on the table here in advance. Yeah. You know, this is what you can get. Cause I mean, I'm sure people can just, well, Hey, you know what? <laughs> I know your matrix says 28,000. 
Yeah. <laughs> but I was wondering if you could give me 40,000 instead. <laughs> People absolutely probably ask. I mean, yeah. I, I'm thinking if I was Thomas Jefferson, I would just be like, no, I'm going to refer you back to the matrix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could, we, cause I mean, it seems here what they've done is they've decided, they've decided what you're worth. And it's just like, listen, we're, we know what you're worth more than, you know, what you're worth anyway, we're going to tell you what you're worth. And, uh, this is it. Take it or leave it. Yeah. I mean, they commit themselves. They give up that opportunity to negotiate and occasionally get some wins, but they also just like take away all that headache. Yeah. They're going to, cause they're, they're going to give full tuition scholarships to people who had no clue they could get a, a full tuition. Yeah. Right. Somebody with a 2.6 and a 159 LSAT, and then they apply and then just immediately get the automatic full ride. Yeah. And they would might not have known that they were going to automatically get the full ride. But yeah, you're, you're automatically getting it. Yeah. That's cool. I commend him. I do too. I think it's interesting. I want to know more now about Thomas Jefferson. And uh, yeah, I, I really, that I want to find more. If anybody out there knows other matrices that are published, please send them to the show. Help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, or me directly, Nathan at Fox LSAT and Ben, Ben at strategyprep.com. Um, Cause yeah, we, we would love to gather more data like this and we'll post it in the show notes, of course. Yeah. Uh, and the show notes, by the way, are on thinkinglsat.com and you can just find all the shows there. Uh, so this next thing, moving on from Thomas Jefferson, uh, an exemplar school uh, for all schools to look up to, to Whittier Law School. So what's going on here? Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. And we did like briefly mention it in the last um, episode. Oh, yeah, we did. What's going on? Hmm, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, no surprise, but Whittier is uh, no longer enrolling new 1Ls and they're just going to let their uh, existing students graduate and then there will no longer be Whittier law. So I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, it's just, um, I guess it's, it's definitely sad for the existing students. I emailed a couple of my, um, students from way back who are now like three L's at Whittier Hmm. and they were not thrilled about the whole thing. Um, they said they were going to move forward. You know, they were, they were talking at, one of them was talking about getting going on and getting an LLM, um, like in tax or something, because she thought that it was going to make her more employable. Oh yeah. Cause to have a law degree from a school that doesn't exist anymore. Doesn't yeah. Too good. Yeah. Although I think maybe she was going to do the LLM there. <laughs> I, oh, I actually know yeah. maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I hope that works out for her. My gut was, or at least part of my brain was like, man, is that throwing good money after bad? You know, like you're not employable with your JD. So now you're going to go get another year worth of questionable value, you know, $50,000 for another year, for another year of like a certification from some rubber stamp. I don't know, but she seemed to think that the, that the LLMs that she was looking at were like connected to jobs. Hmm. Uh, I would ask what kind of guarantees <laughs> there are. Of course, there aren't going to be any, which tells you a lot. Yeah. But anyhow. Um, yeah. Sorry. Random just thought here. I just, this is uh, according to Google, they have four Google reviews, 3.5 stars. No one cares about that, but um, <laughs> thanks Google. Uh, 
they have a bar passage rate of 22%. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, this is a school that wasn't ranked, right? Correct. I feel bad for those who went there, but it almost feels like a school that should be closed. There, there's, there are too many law schools out there and these are the kinds of schools that shouldn't exist, right? I mean, it's kind of this market forces. Yeah. You always say that a little bit stronger than I'm willing to commit to. <laughs> um, you know, I, I know people who have gone to unranked law schools and become successful lawyers. Mm. So I, I can't really say, I can't, I can't paint with that broad of a brush, but it, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think they've got to do something different or interesting in order to, to really compete because otherwise why would people go there? You know, why, especially why would people pay the tuition? And I think that's clearly what was happening there is that they just weren't getting enough enrollments. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't attract the kind of class that they needed to attract in order to justify their own existence. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the super low bar passage rate is, that is super, that is super scary, but like, that's almost criminal though. I mean, 22%. They shouldn't be accepting people into their law school with the realization that only 22% of them are going to make it out. Yeah, uh, I definitely sympathize. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, the counter argument is um, everybody should have opportunity. Everybody should be able to make their own choices in life let us show you all of these alumni who are successful because there will be a lot of them, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. There's a lot of people who didn't make it for whatever reason. Uh, the bar stopped them or they weren't able to find employment. I think they would probably be pretty open and honest about that. They would have to be because it's just the overwhelming evidence, but then they would also be able to point back to, Hey, what about this guy who failed at the first time, failed at the second time, failed at the third time, passed it the fourth time and now has his own law firm. I mean, what about that? You know, yeah. so that's where I have a hard time. Cause I mean, I'm speaking like directly now from experience, not from, not from uh, a Whittier graduate, but from another unranked school, a guy that I, I know well, he was one of my very first LSAT students and that was his story. And he ends up, you know, having his own, like, I don't think he's killing it, not yet, but he, I think he has the opportunity to kill it. Cause he's got, He's got, I bet he's just a monster in the courtroom. I think he's awesome in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And um, he, but yeah, took him four chances to pass the bar. <laughs> went to an unranked <laughs> law school, went into a mountain of debt. But, you know, he, he now is, comes out as this success story. And so when there are those, even though they are exceptions, um, I think that's where they can justify their existence. Yeah. But hmm. Does that make it a good investment for the average person? Hell no. Yeah. Because we are talking about exceptions and you're rolling the dice. You're, you're, you're paying a ton of money. <laughs> this is a big gamble. Yeah. You know, you're putting $150,000 on the roulette wheel and it has to land on black two times in a row. <laughs> and you don't get your $150,000 back. <laughs> even when it does <laughs> so you roll <laughs> that's the ro- that's the deal so yeah 150 grand it, it lands on black okay good yeah, you get to spin again spin it again it lands on black again good 
okay, we keep your money, but we give you this, um, you know, our member of the bar. Now you have the opportunity to go earn that money back. <laughs> now you have the opportunity to work your ass off trying to get a job. By the way, no one hires from our school. So you can go start your own practice. So good luck with that. And just think about hey, everything you learned in class. Just think about all the things that we taught you. Just think about all the wisdom we imparted on you. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah, I think uh, hmm, the opportunity argument, it's, it's tough because here's the thing. The people who are making that argument have a huge financial incentive to do so, right? So you have to wonder how how genuine they are. And thus, if they're not genuine – are they really offering you the best opportunity or advice in terms of getting those opportunities? Well, yeah. The the one thing to never forget is that salespeople want they want your money. They want they want you to go there, and they're thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about you. So, mm-hmm. yeah. When they say when they are, <laughs> well, well, that yeah. This is the this is the car for you. I can just see, boy, you look so good sitting in that car. Yeah, you know. <laughs> like, wow, if you like the car so much, why don't you keep it? Oh, no. <laughs> right. We're in the business of selling cars. Um, okay. Ready for this next one? Yeah. So this next one is from Brad Pitt. Well, he, he says his name is not actually Brad Pitt. Uh-huh. But when he sent us this email, he got his email to say that it was from Brad Pitt. Not just oh. – he didn't just sign it. I don't know if you remember that. But anyways, um, so for a half second when he sent the email, it's kind of like, wow, that would be interesting to have a name like that. Wonder what it'd be like, and then he's like, "Oh, my name actually isn't Brad Pitt." I'm like, "Okay, never mind," because there are people right now, right, whose name is Donald Trump, and it's like, "Hmm, that would suck." Ouch. But, yeah. So, anyways, he says, "Good morning, dudes. Sorry for the long email. My name isn't actually Brad Pitt, but you can call me Brad. Hmm, thanks. For some reason, my real name comes through. Please don't use it. Well, you successfully hid it from us, so I have no idea what your real name is." Um, just figured I'd let you know I signed up for the digital LSAT. Yay. And we'll be giving you guys some feedback, some background on why I'm taking it. I've been in the engineering world for the last five years or so. I was laid off last summer with a few other people to increase my employer's profitability while they were for sale. I didn't like either engineer, either engineering job I had, but they paid well. So I figured I'd find another job, job after job I applied for. I knew I'd hate, but I wanted to pay the bills. Okay. Probably pretty common. After a few months and some long talks with the wifey, I decided a career change would be best. I've always loved the law and wanted to be a lawyer growing up, but bailed for that engineering cash. I signed up for the February LSAT. You know, this is so funny. Um, <laughs> it's funny to hear him say that he, he had this dream of becoming a lawyer, but bailed for that engineering cash. It seems like it was the reverse like 10 years ago, right? People people wanted to be something special, but they bailed for the attorney cash. Now that's just not a thing. Now if yeah. you want a lawyer if you want to it's like to be a lawyer is a is a is a labor of love. You have to sacrifice your yeah. future mortgage. Yeah. You really have to love this. Okay, anyways. I mean, unless you're sure you can get on the big law track, which is it seems possible based on this guy's numbers. Yeah. So Okay. I signed up for the February LSAT the last day I could, like December 23rd, and started studying around January 3rd or 4th. Ooh, gave himself only a month. My first diagnostic was a 158. Great. I went through the LSAT trainer and took eight prep tests before the February test. My last four 
were 169, 164, 168, 165. So some great scores. I ended up with a score of 160. Not exactly sure what happened, but I wasn't thrilled. (sighs) All right. Um, I've been studying off and on since then, and I'm now scoring them in the 170 to 175 range. I'm trying to get that up before the June LSAT. I'm super excited to take this digital LSAT so I can get another test data point before my June sitting. Hopefully I don't crap the bed again come test day. <laughs> um, just to clarify here, he's not going to get an LSAT score on the digital LSAT. I guess he can kind of roughly figure out how it went based on the number he got wrong. But anyways, unfortunately, he won't have another score there. Um So here are my questions. I really want to start in the fall. I 100% 100 understand that I'm at a huge disadvantage, but my wife is already being super cool about me giving up three years of income to pursue something I'm passionate about. She's told me she'll give up her good job and move to wherever I want to go, want to be best. I don't want to make her wait another year if I can help it. That said, my undergraduate GPA is less than ideal, 2.93. It's due to a variety of factors that are in my favor, but I understand that a 2.93 is a 2.93. I'm a Native American, so that's definitely in my favor, but my 160 isn't. I'm hoping to get a 174 plus in June. I'm wondering if you have any tips for someone applying super late in the cycle other than wait. This question mark does, in fact, belong on the outside of the quotation marks. Uh, Okay. I have asked a few schools if they'll consider the June LSAT, and many with a ranking in the 25 to 50 range have said yes, but most above that have said no, especially schools that seem to be splitter-friendly. Okay. I don't know. What do you think about this? Just wait, dude. I, the, <laughs> I, he saw it coming. That's why he said, other than wait. <laughs> well, he's protesting way too much. You know, it's yeah. like um, this whole thing with his wife. Like, um, she's told me she'll give up her good job and move. Well, okay, but you don't have to do that right now. She can keep her job for another year and then move. Right. Yeah. What? I don't. So that, that doesn't make any, I don't want to, I don't want to make her wait another year if I can help it. Well, which is it? Is she giving up something or is she not giving up? I mean, if she waits another year, maybe you end up deciding that you don't want to do this whole thing to begin with. And then the, like, it's never, it's like it never happened. I I don't, I don't understand. I I do not understand the rush other than just, I want to rush. Does he have a job right now? Maybe that's the rush. Like either get a job or go to school. That sounds. I that I think that's what it is more than anything else because it says he got laid off. Yeah, but get another engineering job. Get some temp work. Get some part time work. Don't be an idiot here. You're trying to get a free scholarship. You're trying. You want to go to the best school you can go to, and you want to get a full ride if you can. Yeah, and by applying. That late in the cycle, you're going to apply with a June LSAT score? Are you kidding me? You know, hey, if you get good offers, fine. You know, write us in and tell us that you got a full ride. That's awesome. Um, you well, know, he, I'm, he might get a full ride, but it's going to be to, I mean. If Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. <laughs> 
going to be to Thomas Jefferson. Well, with Thomas Jefferson, he doesn't even need to retake the LSAT. He could just no, get his full done. ride to Thomas Jefferson right now. Yeah. So, but I mean, which that, I'm not saying, you know, that might be a credible plan. Like that yeah. could be, that could be fine. But boy, you, you, if, if you go to law school right now and you pay anything at all, you're making such a mistake. This is, that, that's just a tragic mistake. I, you know, I'm sorry for like ha- taking this kind of tone with people, but it's just, I want to shake them into reality and, and make them look at the actual numbers and think about how much money they're actually paying here. You know, I get it that you don't want to wait another year, but we're talking about a hundred grand. Yeah. Well, or, or more. I think, I think he needs to talk to his wife about these numbers and, and just, they're going to add up really fast. So first of all, you say, look, if, if you, if you apply now and you're not going to be able to apply to all the schools, so you're already limiting your options, but, um, you're not likely to get scholarships. And so then you're immediately giving up all that money right now and um, all the interest you're going to eventually have to pay on those loans, as well as the opportunities that come along with either a lower ranked or a higher ranked school, right? So like (laughs) if you just apply early next year, you're going to get into better schools with more money. Um, Boy, like, what's that going to mean for your life? Like, this is not a good trade-off. And so, no. yeah, talk about how that's going to affect your lives together for the next 20 years. Yeah. He's, like, going around asking schools if they'll consider the June LSAT. That's, like, he's, like, putting a giant bullseye on his back mm. for these schools, you know? Like, mm-hmm. they, they're they like, oh, hey, hey, guys, we have this sucker coming in. Look, <laughs> We're about to close for the night, but this guy looks really desperate. Yeah, you're really desperate if you're applying with the June LSAT, and they know other schools won't be looking at you, and now you're saying, oh, wait, can I get some scholarship money? And they're like, mm, wait, Sure, no. yeah, <laughs> actually, we do have $7,500 a year we can offer you. It's very generous, $7,500 a year, you know, with these complicated renewal requirements on it, <laughs> yeah. by the way. Which are higher than your uh, UGPA. <laughs> Oh, not good. Okay. Anyways, I'm sorry, Brad. Um, this dude reminds me of me a little bit. He's got the super low grades and he's got the pretty high LSAT, you know, mm-hmm. bordering on super high LSAT. And he's too slick. He's like too good at explaining himself. And, you know, I wish somebody would have taken me and shaken me a little bit and said, dude, you're, you're, you're being an idiot. You, you are smart but you are really not doing this negotiation properly. Like you, he's already losing the, right? He already lost the negotiation. If he goes this cycle, it's just mm-hmm. like, you're, you're just screwing yourself. Save yourself a hundred grand and apply next cycle. That's just all there is to it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Next question. I'm consistently scoring in the minus zero to minus two range on LR. Well, great. That makes sense, though, given your scores. With the majority of my trouble coming from two problems. One is parallel reasoning, which I'm working on. Usually I figure them out, but it takes too long. I skip them while going through the first time, then come back at the end with like a minute left. I don't like that. Yeah, so what are are your thoughts? Well, parallel reasoning questions, especially when they're early in the section, can be very easy. Yep. Uh, also generally skipping questions is a waste of time. I mean, if they're, 
if you're going to skip one per section, I might allow it. But if you're skipping more than one per section, then all you're doing is getting into the tougher questions too soon. Mm -hmm. And I would just be stickier and I would just stay there and just figure that shit out. I don't think parallel reasoning has to be that hard. I mean, yeah, there are some really hard ones, but they usually are like question number 24. Mm -hmm. And so I, the skipping I think is over, over strategizing and also it can create a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, like, Oh boy, parallel reasoning. I, I can't do that one. I got to skip that one. Yeah. Well, he's doing, um, uh, when he has only a minute left, which is a high stress situation. <laughs> yeah. If you have a Anyways. minute left, you don't have time to do a question anyway. I mean, yeah. like that's, that's not the point. If you have like a minute left, that's not enough. Just mm-hmm. period. That's not enough to do most questions. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Anyway, you want to go on with the question or do you have any? Well, my only thought would be um, if this truly is a weakness, because, you know, it might not be like what you said. It might be a self-fulfilling prophecy where especially if he's skipping them early on. I mean, I don't really have a problem with you're on the last page or two and you see a long parallel reasoning question and you're like, well, I'll skip that because it's right there in front of you. You can just do these questions out of order. I don't care about that. But if you're skipping like question 14 – um, like you said, it's probably easier. You're also now have to go back and find it. I mean, now your workflow is messed up. Yeah. So, um, you're doing more work than, than I am. You're making the test harder than I, I experience the test very easy because I go through it once you're, <laughs> you're doing, you're shuffling papers a lot. Yeah. But if it truly is a problem, that is really good news because most, yeah. Problems are kind of random and deal with the difficulty of the specific question, not necessarily a broad set of question types, right? And so go figure it out. Go do a bunch of parallel reasoning questions and own them. Like that's your problem. Go fix it. It's yeah. a great opportunity to then all of a sudden turn what is minus zero to minus two to minus zero all the time maybe. And then uh, come back and maybe you discover that they're not that hard and if they are that hard, well, then just do a bunch of them because you don't see that many on the actual test. Make them good, and then now you're good to go. Like it's yeah. a, If it really is a problem, that's a great opportunity. Consider my logical reasoning encyclopedia. It has questions divided by type. There's a bunch of parallel reasoning questions in there. I think you'll see that I handle them pretty easily. You know, it, It's just the one nice thing about parallel reasoning questions is that you don't have to read all the way through the wrong answers in order to eliminate them. Um, most wrong answers, I think you can read halfway through the answer and you know, it's wrong already if you're doing it properly. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like the question takes up a whole column on the page. You're thinking like, Oh my God, this is so much more. There's so much more going on here. It's so big. Look how big this question is. Yeah. But, but, um, that can be a good thing because, if we are trying to eliminate the four wrong answers, they're giving you plenty of reasons to eliminate the four wrong answers there with Mm -hmm. the argument just starts off on some other tangent and it's just not related to the given argument and you don't have to read the rest of it. You just eliminate it and move on. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I would say definitely drill on a bunch of matching pattern questions. It's pretty common that people think they have a problem with matching pattern, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I don't think that they are. Do you think they're just, they're not like objectively harder, are they? No, I think what, I think part of the problem stems from a lack of understanding of exactly 
what makes something parallel and what makes something not parallel. Because I feel mm. like when I talk about these in class, there's a lot of like ahas, like, oh, okay, so that matters and this other thing doesn't matter. That's logically significant. This is not logically significant. So, for example, um, let's say we read the original argument and the original argument has the whole entire conclusion is an if-then statement, right? Mm. I'm like, oh, if-then in the conclusion. And as you're going down through the answers, you're like, well, that conclusion is not an if-then. It just said Joey likes ice cream or something. And so uh, it's like I'm not – like you said, I'm not reading the whole argument. You're seeing a part of it and you're like, this is huge and this has to be the same in the correct answer. So this is out. And so I think they don't have the confidence that they can get rid of answer choices on that basis. And so then they're just sort of like feeling the need to read the entire argument for each one feeling the need to kind of like weigh it on a substantive level more (laughs) than just maybe some like, I don't want to say like quick tricks because it isn't a quick trick. It is based in logic, but knowing that is a significant thing and thus you could eliminate it on the basis of it, the if then statement or whatever, it can be uh, freeing, I think. All right. So, he says I'm the not other- sure we can do the second part of this, but we can look at it. <clears throat> okay. Sorry, I haven't read it yet. But uh, Sorry, I'm cheating. Skipped ahead. Oh, it's okay. The other questions I'm having trouble with, problems with are questions that involve groups of people as part of the conclusion. Uh, yeah, what? Um, hmm? what yeah, I don't know mean? what he's talking about. He gives two specific questions from PT48, but we haven't looked those up. Also, we're not going to really do a lot of responding to individual LSAT questions. Um, one, we can't talk about the specific exact questions because of LSAC licensing issues. And two, um, that's exactly what we do when we do one-on-one private tutoring. So, you know, it's great that he's identified this problem, mm-hmm. um, but he's going to need to contact one of us individually if he wants to work through that problem. We do, we can't, we love your questions and thank you for asking them, but this is just one that we can't really address in this format. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Brad. Or not Brad. And, yeah. Thanks, uh, Brad. Sorry for trying to beat you up, but I mean, you're just, you remind me of me and someone needed to slap me when I was my age. So, you know, just make a good decision here, dude. Do not go into debt. Uh, your wife will thank you when you don't owe $200,000 after law school and you are going to owe $200,000 if you apply this late. Uh, prove us wrong, by the way, if you apply after June LSAT and you get awesome offers, send us, you know, send us a note and we will be happy to eat crow on the show. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. We are evidence-based, Ben and I. (laughs) (laughs) In most cases. (laughs) So go ahead and read, uh, you want to take the next one? Sure. This next email says, hi, Nathan and Ben, triple exclamation point. My name is blank, and I applied for law school this past admissions cycle. Capitalized law school there. (laughs) Law school is not capitalized unless you're naming a specific law school. Um, Okay. I took the September LSAT and scored 162. This was after scoring a diagnostic of 151 and self-studying since I'm too broke and worked a full-time and part-time job all summer then worked full-time while also taking 27 credits in my final semester as an undergraduate student. I decided to sign up for the December LSAT, but due to a death in my immediate family two days before the December LSAT, I was unable to sit in on the test. 
<clears throat> leading up to the December LSAT, I was constantly scoring between a 166 and 170. Fast forward, I had already submitted all of my applications to the schools that I was planning on applying to back in October and was sure that I'd get rejected to most schools. Uh, six of them were in the top 14, four of them between 14 and 25, and uh, one in the top 30. Surprisingly, I was only rejected by two schools. That's with a 162 on record. Um, received admissions to six of them and was waitlisted at three of them. I received admissions to my dream reach school, which was the University of Chicago Law School, and actually got a pretty decent merit scholarship. Wow, with a 162. That's interesting. 162 at Chicago. I mean, wonder what no names GPA is. Yeah, well, it ha- obviously it's not bad and probably has some other interesting work stuff, you know. Who knows what there's at a school like Chicago, it's going to be definitely more than just the numbers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this continues the trend of hearing people getting into schools with, you know, the, the admission standards are going down, folks. <laughs> the admission standards are going down at all of these schools. Yeah. So, you know, it's not that surprising that you, that you got admitted to a bunch of schools. Um, it says a decent merit scholarship, but then he goes on to complain about the merit scholarship. So we don't know what the number is. Yeah. Um, It says, however, that scholarship is still not what I hoped it would be. And now I'm considering sitting in for the June LSAT. Um, I know that in a recent episode of the podcast, you discussed the benefits of taking the June LSAT for possibly receiving admissions off the wait list. Do you think this advice still applies to scholarships? What are your opinions on the fact that Chicago is a top six school, i.e. What does that mean? Does that mean they're exactly number six? (laughs) You say they're top six. (laughs) They're in the top six. Because they're yeah. six. I don't know. Number yeah, six. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like um, my study group. You have to have a 167 LSAT or higher to be in my study group. You have to get a 167 <laughs> or higher. Oh, what'd you get? Uh, 167. <laughs> that's why I made that stupid rule. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, what are your opinions on the fact that Chicago's top six, i.e., do you think that they'd be less willing or more willing to up my scholarship? Um, less willing? but I'm totally speculating. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I would, I would think that the LSAT score would have, no, actually, I think you're right. Because remember for the uh, top schools, the top 14 GPA matters more. So a change in your LSAT score is going to have less of an impact on their excitement for you. But to say that it doesn't have any, I think would be wrong. So no, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying because they're the more competitive schools don't need to give as competitive of scholarship offers. I mean, that's like why Harvard and Stanford and Yale like do just different things with their merit scholarships. Right. I mean, it's like when you start talking about the upper, upper tier, the whole system breaks down. Yeah. Yeah. So, but they still would be willing. I mean, I think this is a, this would be an argument to make. And something that I think they would still consider, especially with a 162. If you can get that up to a 168, all of a sudden now you're not pulling their average down, right? Yeah, and right, and you you show them that hey, uh, I have a credible chance to reapply next year and potentially get into Harvard or Stanford or Yale, which is that's why Chicago wants to give you scholarship money is because they want to steal you from Harvard or Stanford or Yale. Yeah, right, or they want to steal you from wherever else you're 
you're thinking about going. So I would say, especially based on, you know, if, the, if it's true that this guy was constantly scoring between 168 or 166 and 170, and he's only got a 162 on record, then that's a no brainer retake. Yeah. But it also is very likely a no brainer. Wait another year, reapply next cycle. Right. Cause I mean, seriously, a 168 makes this guy into a totally different candidate. True. I, it all comes down to whatever uh, Chicago comes back with, right? Because that's a great school, and if it's his dream school and it's a, it's a really good scholarship that they come back with, I would just take it, you know, too. It just depends, I guess. Be done yeah, with it. but definitely ask for more money. And Yeah, for sure. You know, if also, if you think you can get a 168, and if your practice tests show that you clearly can get a 168, then... Yeah, I think you should have the balls to tell Chicago no and come back next year and reapply. Yeah. I mean, they could say no next year, but really, they wanted you with a 162 and now they don't want you with a 168? Mm-hmm. Hard to imagine that that's how that works. Yeah. So, you know, I would I would definitely take it in June. I would definitely ask them for more money and then see what they say. Yeah. Um, I've recently come across the idea of taking the June LSAT. Uh, so I started restudying for the LSAT and here comes another phase in this. I took my first practice test after not touching the LSAT for five months and scored a whopping 157. Ooh, what? Getting 12 wrong on reading comprehension, a total of 12 wrong on logical reasoning and five wrong on logic games. If I were to retake it, how do I best optimize the next month and a half to achieve the best possible score? Well, I don't think our advice changes in any way in that regard. Still take 35-minute sections, but just keep an eye on your practice test scores and make sure that they are high when you retake it. Also, before you do anything else, you need to thoroughly review this test that you just took. Yeah, figure out I mean, what went wrong. What? Let's talk about the 12 errors that you made on reading comprehension. I mean, what the? what is that? Yeah. That, that's a, that doesn't even seem like it should be possible for someone who was able to score 168. And now all of a sudden you get 12 wrong on reading comprehension. My is guess is on? that, um, when he jumped back into it, he probably it's, this is probably a matter of execution, right? Like you can get questions wrong because you don't understand the logic or there's something challenging about how the sentence was worded and you didn't have the chops to interpret it cor- correctly. But a lot of times too, it can just be, you're executing incorrectly. You're going fast and it's like, slow down. Oh, now all of a sudden everything makes sense and all these wrong answers turn into right answers. So I wonder if something like that happened. Yeah, he could have been like, I'm a, he, he stepped back to the plate and just tried to swing for the fences. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm going to just get a 175 on this one. I'm going to show them. I'm going to get a 170. I'm going to get a 180. And then like, you know, to get a 180, I have to finish every question. I got to rush through. Whoa, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's, and that's exactly how someone who scores 168, you know, who can score 168 consistently can also score a 157. If you try for a 178, that's yeah. like the easiest way that you can really, really fuck up is to try for more than you're actually capable of. Yeah. So that that's probably what happened here. He swung for the fences. When he goes back and reviews his mistakes, they're going to all be like obvious. He's going to be like just slapping himself upside the head. Like, oh man, what was I thinking there? Yeah. So, you know, you got to stop doing that and you got to stay within yourself. You have to play your game, not the game you wish you had, but the game you actually have. And if the game you actually have makes it so that you don't 
you know, you, you have good accuracy, but you don't always finish. That's totally fine. And you can score 168 mm-hmm. by being accurate, but not always finishing. That's, yeah. that's totally fine. Yeah. And the most important thing for this writer who is, will remain nameless. The most important thing here is to make sure that you get at least that 168 that you know, you're capable of. Yeah. That's step one. And, um, you know, if you go in there trying to get a 168 and you just go calmly and carefully, you might accidentally get a 175, mm-hmm. but you, you don't do that by like trying to force a 175. You do that by just calmly achieving the 168 that you are easily capable of achieving. And then when you do that, a lot of good things can happen. Yeah. So, you know, it reminds me of a student I just talked to the other night. She, she's doing pretty well. But she took a test and she got eight points higher and she was and she's already doing pretty well. And she she said, I I wonder why I did so well. And I said, Well, what what do you think happened? What what did you do differently? And uh, she was going through different things and then finally she said she goes, Well, I did read the passage first rather than the question. I go, Oh, uh, yeah, I think that would make a big difference. And she's like, I don't know if that's something that you advocate. And I was like, <laughs> Oh man, have I failed? Like I <laughs> I thought I that was like one thing I've been saying over and over again, but maybe I haven't been or I haven't said it enough. I'm like, "Yes, that's something I I strongly recommend." Um and she's like, "Oh, okay, great. I think I'll keep doing that." But in any case, I mean, things of execution can make a huge difference because they don't have anything to do with your I don't want to say innate, but your current understanding yeah. of the test. They just have to do with how your letting your knowledge be put to use. Are yeah. you letting it be put to use or are you kind of like messing yourself up basically? Well, another hypothesis for this guy would be like, it can be hard to get back into like taking your practice tests. He could have been taking his practice tests too seriously, trying to score a 175, but he also could have been like not taking it seriously enough. Just, you know, he knows he has a score on record. He knows yeah. he's already been admitted to his dream school yeah. with a partial scholarship. And then now he's going to sit there for a two and a half hour grind through a practice test. And it can be pretty easy to start daydreaming and, you know, just not, not really giving it your full attention. Yeah. And yeah, if you don't give it your full attention, you're not going to score 168. Yeah. So that's possible too. Execution matters. Yeah. Um, Okay. Continuing on for reference, I'm also going to mention that I did receive a six figure scholarship at another top 14 Cornell, but their lack of placement in judicial clerkships, the fact that I have visited the university and hated Ithaca and their large focus on big law and international law, two areas I have no interest in makes me pretty set on Chicago as an institution. Uh, Okay. Yeah. What do you think he does want to do? I don't know. I guess, well, no, he says there's a lack of placement in judicial scholarships. So he wants to do judicial scholarships. I guess he wants to. Judicial clerkship. He wants to do a judicial clerkship. (laughs) I can't read. Um, For what? I don't know. Maybe he wants to be a judge. Does he think he's going to be a judicial clerk for for the rest of his life? Because that's not really a thing, right? Yeah. I mean, um, does he think he wants to just go? I mean, judicial clerkship is. Maybe it's a step toward being a judge, but it doesn't go like judicial clerk, then judge. Yeah. No, you get a clerkship, you then go work at a firm and get a little bonus for being a clerk. 
So I'm usually right. Yeah. I mean, of course, listeners are not going to be surprised that I'm always going to be going back to this. Like, Hey, are you sure you really want to be a lawyer? Mm -hmm. I could go back to the top of this email and Oh wait, I was thinking about the last email. Sorry, never mind. The last email I was questioning too, like, do you really want to be a lawyer? Because it was like, I've always loved the law, you know? Yeah. What do you you do? Are you sure? Like, I'm not calling you a liar. I'm just, do you know what that actually means? Mm-hmm. And I yep. question whether people actually do. Because, you know, the, I, I really don't, they always wanted to be a lawyer. Like, yeah, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Children, I hate to break it to you. Children don't know what lawyers do. Yeah. Uh, so when you were a kid and wanted to be a lawyer, that's fine. You just didn't know what lawyers want, what lawyers do. So it doesn't matter what you wanted to do when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, do you know now what lawyers do and do you really want to do that? So, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering that just, that gave me a, there was a little red flag there. Like, I don't want to go to Cornell because they focus on big law. Whoa. Wait, why do you want to go to law school again? Yeah. Um, okay. Finally, I've considered reapplying next year, but I'm going to consider doing that after taking the June LSAT, negotiating with Chicago, and seeing what comes of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfectly sensible plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were incremental in getting in me getting above 160 when studying. Instrumental, right? Instrumental. Instrumental, folks. Not incremental, but instrumental. Um that's just what happens when you try to use big words. I mean, I'm sure I'm guilty of the same thing a lot, but, uh, people notice, uh, any advice on this topic will help warmly, uh, anonymous. Yeah. Anything else there for anonymous? No. Uh, I think his plan makes sense. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. Thanks for writing. Sorry for busting your balls about grammar, but we do that. Next one. Yeah. Hi, Thinking Nilsat. Thanks for addressing my questions a few weeks ago. Oh, this is from Gibran. Mm. Uh, about the meaning Gibran of, from the car wash. Yeah, the car wash game. Yeah. Uh, for addressing my he says, thanks for addressing my questions a few weeks ago about the meaning of A's or B's and various quantifiers. Yeah, no problem. I have another question. You guys repeatedly emphasize that we should be getting close to every question we attempt correct and that we shouldn't be finishing sections if we're dropping more than a couple questions in the first 20. But difficult problems can be scattered throughout a section, and some easier problems can be found toward the very end. So it seems unreasonable to insist on near perfection on the questions attempted. For mm-hmm. example... Let's stop there for a second before he gets into his examples. Okay. <clears throat> yes, there are some easy ones at the end. Yes, there are some hard ones in the beginning. Yep, but on on average, the harder ones are at the end, and the easier ones are at the beginning. And we're not insisting on one hundred percent accuracy; we are insisting on very high accuracy uh, on the earlier, easier questions. And yes, I know that you found number twenty four and number twenty five on this test. Wow, look how easy those those ones were. Yeah, I know, but you missed four out of the first twenty. And you didn't have to miss those. And I don't care that you got 24 and 25 right because you missed too many in the first 20. (laughs) You're making the test hard on yourself. You're doing too many problems. That's all we're saying. So, yeah, I know you can show me a hard one in the beginning 
and I know you can show me an easy one at the end, but you wouldn't be able to do that until you had already spent time on that question. And I'm going to make the presumption and I'm going to be correct that the questions in the last five are much harder than the questions in the first five. I'm always correct when I make that assumption. So it's not correct for every individual question, but it is correct for any group of five. So I'm going to take my time getting five out of the first five and nine out of the first 10 or 10 out of the first 10. And you can do it however you want, but you're going to learn faster and you're going to score higher if you just focus on accuracy instead of speed. Yeah. Anyway, that's my sermon that I've given a million times, but now to be fair, he does say near perfection, um, dropping more than a couple questions. So he, he is, he's not, he doesn't think that we think that you should do this perfectly. As you just said, you can get a few wrong. I guess he's worried about more than a few. But in any case, well, what's the complaint? You shouldn't be missing more than a couple in the first 20. I mean, what are you doing? You you shouldn't be working on 21 through 25 if you're missing more than a couple in the first 20. Yeah. So let's let's take a look at his example because I think his example um, raises almost like a different question. So I don't think that I don't think that uh, we necessarily disagree with what he's about to say here. I mean, on some level, yes, but on another level, no. He so he says, for example. Aren't substitution questions in logic games often a waste of time for people who would need three minutes or more to get it correct? Um, Let's keep going. What about the occasional tough parallel question with lots of conditional logic or must-be-true questions with conditional logic and most in some statements? These can often be time-consuming. Isn't there some point at which a test taker is making the wrong decision by continuing to work on a problem even if that work would eventually produce a correct answer? So – Yes, I think that there is a point where you should let the question go. But I think that it sounds like from what Gibran is saying here is that he thinks that that assessment can be made before you've really put a lot of time into the question. And um, I don't think you can know that until you attempt it. So I think – with every question, you attempt it, uh, you try your very best. If you can't come to a correct answer, you're missing something in the passage or you're missing something in one of the two answers that you're debating, and you need to reread those, and you need to figure out what you're missing. And if you still can't figure it out at that point, then, yeah, you should abandon ship and go on to other questions because you made a valiant effort. But I think the assumption here that he has is that a lot of these questions are things that you can figure out that they're going to be hard from the beginning. And you don't know until you actually attempt it. Okay. The one exception to that in my book is the rule substitution question that appears at the very end of some logic games. Um, we talked about this, Ben, on episode one of the show. We actually argued about um, whether to skip the rule substitution questions on the games. Yeah, uh, I still say you can't really hurt yourself by just going and skipping those questions. There's only one or maybe two of them on the logic games section, and they do tend to be harder, and they do so- sometimes extremely hard. And because they sometimes are extremely hard, 
I think we can make the assumption just probabilistically now, we don't know exactly about this question, but we do know that this question type tends to be sometimes really hard. And I feel like that makes it a gamble that you don't have to take. It's a, it's a totally, I think it's a conservative strategy to just say, I'm not going to do the rule substitution questions on the logic games. Okay. Like you, you identify that it's a rule substitution question and you just go on to the next game. And I think if you're in, if you're getting really good at the games, like if you get, if you're somebody who's already getting like three games, then maybe you are good enough at the test to understand those questions. And like, and, and sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll do them and they'll turn out to be really easy and it might make it worth doing. But I think that question, if you want to skip that question, that's totally fine. I'm, I don't think you're ever going to get yourself in trouble by skipping that question. That's just specifically the question on games that asks you, uh, which one of the following, if substituted for the rule that X comes before Y, would have the same effect in determining the order? That type of question. If you want to skip it, that's fine. You could spend zero time on that type of question. And I would give Gibran permission, if he agrees with me, I would give him permission to skip that question. But that doesn't prove anything about all of the other types of questions that he's talking about. Because that one is one where you can just scan it and you can tell that it's that it that it it has a chance to be much harder than average. Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. I don't necessarily disagree with that, uh, especially if you're someone who's not finishing the games. Uh, that means you're not... Yeah, which is almost <laughs> everyone. That's why I give that like general advice. You know, Most people sure. aren't finishing. So if you're not finishing, this is just one question and you have a whole game behind it, You know, including probably a list question at the very beginning of that next game, which you could get by just grinding through. Sure. Now, I'm going to push back just a little bit because I do think that these questions, uh, when you understand what you're looking for, can be easier than they are perceived to be, especially if they're like in an easier ordering game. Yeah. And I agree with you. I agree with you. It's just, I'm talking about like my experience in the classroom of teaching it. Yeah. Like there are some people where that the light bulb is never going to go on for, for that type of question. Like it's just, I mean, and you know, I'm a pretty, as much as I'm an asshole sometimes on the show, I'm a patient classroom teacher. Like I'll explain it 10 different ways to people. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who are just like deer in the headlights, like they're just never going to get it. And so if that's you, you know, or if that's you today, I would say I have no, and yeah, if you're not finishing the games, I have no problem with you just skipping that question. Yeah. But you're right, Ben, for people who are already pretty good, like if you're finishing or if you're getting close to finishing, and if you have some experience with these questions and you feel like you kind of get the hang of what they're asking, they don't have to be hard. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm talking over you. While we're talking about this question, just to, if anyone's curious, because I imagine people are now, uh, the one reason I think that they can be easier than we often think they are is that the wrong answer is... I guess this is just like the whole test, but the wrong answers uh, are are very easy to disprove. I mean, there's two different ways you can get rid of the wrong answers on this rule substitution question. Exactly. They the the correct answer has to be a perfect replacement of whatever rule they got rid of. So it can't prevent anything from happening that could have happened before, and it can't allow things to happen that couldn't happen before. So it doesn't, and sometimes answers do both. Sometimes they prevent things that couldn't have happened before. And sometimes at the same time, allow thing, other things yeah. that couldn't have happened before. And so it doesn't matter 
since there's two ways to get rid of any answer, you just look at that answer and you think to yourself, wow, is this, is this like at all too strict? Is this, is this imposing any requirement? Yeah. Just one small little thing that. Another way of thinking about that is the correct answer is a must be true according to the original rules. Under the original rules, the correct answer is must be true. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, the correct answer makes the old rule into a must be true. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's the, and that's the two different ways of getting rid of it, right? The first one is, does this have to be, is this a must be true? So that's, does this, you know, I'm worried about this rule doing more than the old rules. Mm-hmm. So if it's a must be true, then it doesn't do anything more than the old rules. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, does it replicate the old rule? Does it turn the old rule into a must be true? Does it force the old condition that we were trying to, that, you know, that had to be in play in place? Do we, does this replicate that? Yeah. Um, to, to, for, to add one more analogy, if this is helpful, one way I like to think about these rules is you had an old rule, which was like the old regime. And then this new rule is like the new regime. And the question is, is the new regime uh, imposing stricter rules than like was that. there before? Uh, or is the new regime more lax, right? Are they more like accepting of behavior that wasn't allowed before? And if <laughs> the new regime is either too strict or too lax in any way, shape or form, then that answer choice is out. So a lot of times I find myself getting to the right answer, not necessarily by seeing, oh yeah, this proves, or this is a perfect replacement. It's more like, oh, this one's bad, that one's bad, this one's bad, and this is what's left, right? Yeah. Um, certainly there are cases, especially on the easier ones, where you're like, oh yeah, this is a perfect replacement, I can see that. So, But the point is, is there's several different ways to get to the answer, and I think once you understand that, the, the strictness that is required or the, the exactness that's required of the correct answer, it's really easy to get rid of the wrong answers. It's easier to get rid of the wrong answers than it is to pick the right answer in a lot of cases because the right answer doesn't even have to mention the variables that were mentioned in the rule that you're trying to replace. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, ru- the, the rule you were trying to replace might have been X before Y. Mm-hmm. And the correct answer could be something bizarre like you know, uh, C has to go before D depending on the way that the other rules interact. It's totally possible that the correct answer, it it could be that, Oh wow, this new regime is going to have the exact same effect as the old regime, even though they got there in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. So that's why it can be hard sometimes to identify the correct answer, but you're right that the wrong answer is if it's more strict or if it's more lax, then it's out. Yeah. Okay. That said, I would allow Jabron, I would allow people, in fact, and 90% of students, I think, I would say, hey, in any case, you're not going to hurt yourself by skipping it. It's only one question, right? So how much can it possibly cost you? Yeah, Yeah, even then, you're only costing yourself eight-tenths of a point in expected value. I mean, you get two-tenths just for bubbling in a bubble for free. So it's eight-tenths of a point in expected value you can get if you are hundred percent certain that you can get this question right. And then it's just a balance of, is the, is the time worth it? And I would bet for most people, it's just not worth that investment of time because it's probably going to be more time consuming and you've got a whole additional game that you might be able to get to in the time that it take you to do this one question. Sure. 
Okay. So going, but going back to these other questions, like most questions, like if you come across a, a parallel reasoning question, as we talked about earlier, or you yeah. come across a question with a lot of formal logic, yeah. sometimes those are hard, yeah, but sometimes if you just slow down and you try to understand that, oh, okay, well, most X are Y and some Y are, are T, what has to be true? And you start reading the answers, you're like, oh, eh, it's B. And so I... I don't yeah. I guess I I I would be I'd be surprised uh to see how easily people can judge whether a question is hard or easy. Yeah, you can't. Do. No, you can't. You can't. You you because even oh it's parallel reasoning. Yeah, but some parallel reasoning questions are super easy. So, you know, you can't you can't tell really by glancing at it. You have to attempt it. And then I think the thing that he's misunderstanding here is that we're not, you know, he does say again, perfection. And so he said near perfection earlier in the email, but then now in the beginning of the second paragraph, he says, isn't there a balance between perfection and moving on with an educated guess? We're not talking about perfection. Um, We're definitely talking about educated guesses. And there, there is a point. Again, it has nothing to do with the time it has everything to do with, are you making progress toward the correct answer? And I'm sticking with this, that if you feel like you're getting closer to the correct answer, you should stay there and just get there. Mm-hmm. But the point, at the, there's a point where you just, you're not getting traction anymore and you're going to realize that. Like, hey, I've read it a couple times. I know it's not these three answers. I know it's either D or E, but I can't really figure, I can't put my finger on it exactly. I've compared D and E a couple times. Now I'm just not getting any closer. Mm-hmm. Then at that point, you just listen to that little voice that says, you know, pick B or pick whatever. Sorry, not B because D or E. <laughs> <were> the- <laughs> just <laughs> that, just that other voice. You don't want that one. No, you want the voice that, yeah, you know, just there's a reason there's going to be something in your gut that leads you to pick either D or E at that point. And that's totally fine. Yeah. You're going to, you're not spending forever on it. You're not taking all 35 minutes on this one question, but I'm also not checking my watch to see how much time has elapsed or anything like that. It's just, I've read it carefully. I've read it again. I've got a handle on it because I've eliminated these wrong answers. And now I'm, I'm stuck between D and E and I can't really tell why, but I'm just picking one of them and moving on. Yeah. And that's an, there's an art to that. And I think you just have to practice. You'll find that you frequently get, you know, more than 50, 50, right. You're going to get like 75% or more of those 50, 50s, right. If you're on the right track, you know, if you've actually been learning about the test and and making progress, you're going to get a lot of those 50, 50s, right. But yeah, at some point you have to move on. And when we talk about the, the intermediate accuracy targets, nine out of the first 10 and 13 out of the first 15 and 17 out of the first 20, that's a reality check to just, you know, be honest with yourself about, am I going too fast or not? And I, I, I'm committed to the idea that if you got 16 out of the first 20, you're, you're going a little too fast. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah, I know you got some of the later ones, right? That's great. But you missed four out of the first 20. You didn't have to do that. And you know, if you would have gotten those ones right, you would have, it doesn't matter what you did on the last five. Yeah. Hey, so, uh, I do have one piece of advice. This is both for during the test and after when you're reviewing. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of times people are down to D&E, as you were saying, and they sort of seem stuck. And and that's not only during the test, but after the test, right? They're like, well, I was stuck between these two answer choices, and I can kind of see why E is correct, but I don't see why D is wrong. When you're stuck between two answer choices, either during the test or afterward, this is what you need to do. You need to go through each answer choice word by word and decide what things are similar and what things are different. Now, maybe the two answer choices are totally different, but that's not always the case because I don't even know if that's usually the case because if there are two answers that you're finding tempting, then they probably have some similarity. (laughs) Yeah, how would they both be (laughs) if they're so bizarrely different? I don't think they're both good answers. Yeah, but... So a lot of times what will happen is sometimes in class people will be like, and I, you know, I, even I've done this too, I, sometimes we'll be like, oh, well, you know, D is wrong because it says should and, and we don't really care about what should happen. And then someone will astutely point out like, well, wait, answer choice E says should as well. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, then that was, a, that was a great thought in our heads, but it means that we're not obviously getting closer to why this answer is really wrong. And so if you go through those answers word by word and you say, okay, um, this answer choice says key, this answer choice talks about a key difference, and this answer choice talks about an important difference. Well, key and important are synonymous, so that's not going to make a difference in terms of which answer is right or wrong. So you got to move on. But the point of doing this is it, it forces you to zero in on the one thing or two things that make the answers different and thus must be what the test writers had in mind to make one right and one wrong. And sometimes, uh, you know, when I'm, especially with working with people in one-on-one tutoring, it's like, I'd love to tell you why this answer is wrong, but if you can find it, then that's 10 times better for both of us. And so (laughs) I have people walk through that and I'm like, well, fine, just tell me what the two differences are. Or, I mean, what's the difference between these two answers? And then let's go from there. And in most cases, it's like, oh, well, here's a difference. Mm, I guess that is pretty significant. That must be why this is wrong. So, Yeah, I like that. Mm -hmm. And, And you just don't take forever on that analysis. And at some point you do move on and we're not asking for perfection. We're just asking that you get as close as you're going to reasonably get and then move on. But I think that all has to do with your analysis of the question and it has nothing to do really with elapsed time. I mean, that process shouldn't take that long. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, we're, we're diligently working on this and we're going to get to the, our best, you know, it's like in your opinion, (laughs) in your legal opinion, (laughs) as close as you can get, you know, not perfection, but just as close as you can reasonably get. Okay. And then move on to the next one. And yeah, you are going to get to certainty on a lot of them, but on a lot of them, you're going to get to 50, 50 and you're just, you're going to get more than half of those. Right. So, you know, just roughly in the first 20, I think a good student, like someone who's going to score 165 in the first 20, they probably do have like what, three or four, like 50 fifties. Yeah. Three 50, 50 kind of things where they're like, not a hundred percent sure, but they're, well, I'm not getting any closer here. So I think I'm going to pick B mm-hmm. and they get three quarters of those, right. And they miss a quarter of them. And they, that's how they get 18 right out of the first 20. Yeah. And I think that's how it's done. I mean, I just, I think that's the, the easiest route to success. That's why we're advising it. Yeah. Okay, he goes on 
Oh yeah, this is what you started reading. Isn't there a balance between perfection and moving on? Yes. Um, if so, what tips do you have for when to skip? Yes, we talked about that. I've heard Nathan and Ben say that they possibly Ben say that they don't pay attention to time, but that's probably because you guys are very high scores. The fi- the advice to not pay attention to time seems to me like a slight exaggeration. Isn't what you really mean? Don't pay too mu- too much attention to time. And if so, determining what is too much would be helpful to talk about. Um, I mean, I'd be a hypocrite to say that I haven't thought about time in the past. We've talked about this as well. I mean, I like to know, I like to know what the time is, but I, yeah, we disagree on this point. We've talked about this on the show. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to say this, and that is that um, this happens, uh, I think, most frequently for me in games. I will set up the rules. I will then try to decide whether I should create worlds or not, right? And to decide whether or not I should create worlds, that is various scenarios on the basis of an assumption. For example, Mm -hmm. does, hey, look, T can only go in two and five, uh, if I assume that it's in two, will that lead to more inferences? If it's in five, will that lead to more inferences? Maybe I should create two worlds, one on the basis of T and two, one on the basis of T and five. Yep. And to go through that process, a lot of times I have to test extremes, right? And I think we've talked about this before as well. But, And I hope I haven't said this on the podcast too many times, but a lot of times I get through that process and I've played around with it. And sometimes I've ended up creating worlds uh, – Half the other time, I haven't, right? Like, it didn't turn out to be worth the effort. And so then, uh, just out of curiosity, I and this is where people should not look at their watch, but I I like to look at my watch because I like to have this information partly for the class because people do ask, like, how long do you take to set up a game? And sometimes I'm spending, like, four minutes. And I'm like, holy cow, four minutes. And um, if for the longest time, that gave me, like, pause, like, oh my gosh, like now I spent four minutes messing around with this game and, you know, it's probably going to take another five or six to do the question. So that's 10 minutes. It's way like longer than I would have hoped for this game. But time and time again, the questions then go extraordinarily fast because it's like I am completely familiar with the rules. Yeah. Even though, even if I didn't create worlds, like in the effort to make them, I kind of realized, oh, uh, this can never go there or whatever. And there's lo and behold, some question like, where can T not go? And you're like, well, I already know the answer. So I'm like looking for the answer. And that question takes a sum total of 10 seconds. Right. And so then all of a sudden I finish the game. I look at my watch again. And it's like six minutes and 42 seconds. I'm like, yeah. wow. And then I go back to the classroom and I'm waiting for everybody else to finish. And there are certainly people who are sitting there on their phones. They're like, hey, I'm done with this game. And then you have other people who are just, like struggling through a question, you can see them testing out answer choices. Maybe they're testing out even that question that took 15 seconds. And so my point is, is that I can understand this like fear because even after all these years, I still occasionally feel that tinge of like, wow, four minutes on the setup. I haven't even looked at any of the questions yet. And then like, bam, the questions just go so fast. And this happens in reading comp, it happens in games, it happens in logical reasoning, more on an individual question basis. But the point is, is that just have faith (laughs) that slowing down and trying to understand what's going on up front is going to pay off down the road. 
And if you had looked at your watch and it was like three minutes and 30 seconds and you're not quite done with your worlds yet, what if, you know, you, oh shit, this is taking me longer than I thought. I better abort on this and just go, I better start doing the questions now. Yeah, that would be I mean, bad. That would be horrible. Yeah. That, you know, I, I want to be really clear on this point. Um, in my opinion, um, I, I would prefer, and this is for me as a test taker, but it's also for my students as well. I would prefer that we have no idea how much time has elapsed. I, I do not think that the watch is helpful. I mean, literally, I don't want you to know how much time is left. I want you to be thinking about solving the game, or I want you to be thinking about solving this question. And yeah, like, like we were talking about earlier at length, you get to a point where you're spinning your wheels, you're not making any more progress. So it's time to move on, but that has nothing to do with elapsed time. And it has everything to do with the quality of analysis you're doing. I'm not exaggerating this in the slightest. I mean, I want you to pay literally zero attention to the time I mean, literally, I would prefer if you don't bring a watch with you on the day of the test. Now, Ben and I, have, we've talked about this a lot on the show. Ben advocates looking at the time sometimes. That's totally fine. Reasonable minds can disagree. But my opinion is I hope you don't ever look at the watch because, you know, the answers aren't on there. <laughs> the answers aren't on there. <laughs> They're not. They have no, that has nothing to do with getting the questions right. And, yeah. you know, yeah. your job is to figure out the questions and put the right answers on the score sheet. Mm-hmm. If you're not putting the right answers on the score sheet, then it doesn't matter what the clock says. And, and the clock doesn't help you to do that. So we, we've debated this at length. And I don't think our opinions are, are closely aligned anyway. I mean, Ben's saying, look at it sometimes. I'm saying, look at it never. We're both really loudly saying, don't look at it too much. Don't try to go fast. Um, you know, (laughs) I think most students get themselves in trouble by looking too much at the clock. And I think we both agree on that. Yeah. And I, I have to sympathize with your view here. I think that, um, part of the reason I can look at it is that despite it taking a long time, I still, I have this faith in, the process and that this is the way to do it, even if you feel this time pressure. And so I'm looking more just for information, but I have to agree with you. I think the, I mean, I don't know what percentage, but I imagine it's a huge percentage of test takers don't have that faith and thus aren't going to just look at it as information, but are largely going to look at it and then panic. Yeah. I mean, I have two things to say about that. One the panic thing is real. And I think that, yeah, I think more, more people are causing themselves panic than, than not. Yeah. Two, I, you keep saying information, but to me, I still think that's not useful information because if you look at the watch and you find out you have plenty of time, you don't take any different act. I mean, maybe you get a little, ah, nice. I have plenty of time. Okay. That's good. I suppose that's a good thing. But if you look at the watch and you realize that you're behind time or that you wish you were going fast, you know, that you wish it, you wish it didn't say the number it said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then, then like you, Ben, are capable of being Zen about that and going, oh, it's fine. I trust the process. I'm going to be fine. But most other people are going to panic or I just don't, it's not actionable information. The only action you can take is go back to the questions and continue calmly answering them. You can't yeah. like try to put the gas pedal down 
because that's exactly the wrong thing to do. So that's why I really just don't even want people to look at all. If you can look and not take action on the information, then fine. (laughs) But in that case, what good is the information? Yeah, I mean, part of my curiosity is probably stems from the fact that I am teaching this and constantly discussing it. So people are always asking me, you know, how long do you do this? How long do you do that? And I am confidently saying, look, I'm spending four minutes on the reading passage. You're spending in a minute and a half. There's, there's got to be, I mean, unless you're an extraordinary reader, there's got to be a problem there. And yeah, so th- I, that sort of thing is very like interesting to me. And so I, you know, I'm always kind of noting that and looking at the outcome too. Like, oh, but the whole yeah. thing took me eight and a half minutes. So, yeah, it makes sense. It, it makes sense for like an, analyzing your own game. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's like there's there are some sometimes where you'll do different things in practice than you'll do on the actual game day. But yeah. but for purposes of analysis, right? It's like. I'm a golfer, right? And it's like some people doing like drills or watching yourself on videotape or it's like shit that you would never do on the actual golf course, but you can do it on the practice range because you're, you're working on some shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when you're doing your 35 minute sections, I really don't want people looking at the clock after every game and notating the time that's elapsed. I mean, that's not, you're not going to do, why would you do that on the test? But it's not, that's not, you don't get points for that. Yeah. So and if you're going to do that and then it's going to freak you out or bum you out or whatever, because shit, it took me 12 minutes to do that first game. I'm, I'm supposed to do that first game in six minutes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I better rush through the second game. And then that's just how people completely crash and burn. So yeah, when, if you're doing that in class to just kind of like get some, some data on, oh, usually it takes me this long to do the setup or, oh, usually it takes me this long to read the passage. Yeah, I think that's fine. I just, I don't know that that's like something you want to really bring with you to to game day yeah okay um are we good with jabron yeah i think so thanks jabron um, i'm sorry yeah. to everybody today for being i'm feeling feisty today i don't know why but <laughs> <laughs> feistier than usual i apologize for my tone did you have coffee this morning i always have coffee you always have co- i didn't know you were like a coffee coffee guy oh yeah no of course i uh, it's, it's the, it's the least damaging of all of my vices. <laughs> How's that medical marijuana coming along? <laughs> That's like the second least damage. Actually, that might be the least damaging of all my vices. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. Like it's like ridiculously non-damaging. Yeah. I think about it all the time. I, I like, have I said this before on the show? Like that I just like forget to, to use my medical marijuana. I like forget about it. That's how, that's how addicted I am to it. That I just like totally forget about it. I don't even like remember. I don't even remember. Um, and booze on the other hand, I never, ever forget about. Yeah. (laughs) Like that does not ever leave my mind. And you know, it's not, that's not to say that I am drinking all the time or that I am drinking every day, but it's, I, I, I think about it frequently and mm-hmm. if, if I'm like, I like have to intentionally be like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to have any drinks today. That's stupid. I'm not drinking today. And, but I still will think about it like 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> and weed just doesn't do that at all. Weed is like, don't even like, oh, I forgot. Yeah. Cool. Anyway. <laughs> uh, next email. Yeah. So, uh, Henry, do you want to read this one? Sure. Can we use Henry's name? Uh, I don't know. 
Doesn't say not to. <laughs> Sorry, Henry. Okay. Henry's a pretty generic name. That's oh wow. Sorry, Henry. What? <laughs> you just I called him generic. Dude, my name is generic. <laughs> Your name is generic. That's true. That's I think true. we can say Henry's pretty generic. Do you know that. that when I call and order pizza, I always, I mean, like more than half the time, okay, I go, yeah, I order my, make my order. What's your name? Nathan. Mason? Mason. Yeah, that's every weird. Every time. I get Mason every time. It pisses me off. I don't, one, I don't know whose name is actually Mason. Yeah. And two, do I not say Nathan correctly? Do I, do I say it wrong over the phone? Do I lisp or something? Is Where, I don't understand why I'm getting Mason. If someone can sort this out for me, I would really appreciate it. And if there's other listeners named Nathan, and if you ever have this, this same problem of getting Mason, um, Man, I think I might have to declare war on the Masons of the world. I'm going to get the Nathans together, and we're going to take down the Masons. Hmm. I okay. think there's more of us. Yeah, good. Good plan. Yeah. Um, I always get Dan. Dan. So I wonder, I wonder if it's the way I say it, too. Like, is this a, this is a Ben thing, or is this like, I just can't talk? I mean, maybe I just can't talk. So. Yeah, that's Ben and Dan. I mean, I... I see how it's superficially similar, just like Nathan and Mason. Mm-hmm. I guess they rhyme. Ben and Dan don't even rhyme. <laughs> it's what I get, though, all the time. I'm like, uh, a lot of times I just go with it. I'm like, yeah, sure. Fine. All right. What? Well, <laughs> yeah. All right, generic Henry. Let's let's do this. We can call him Hank. <laughs> Hank. Yeah. Okay. Hank is a, is a good nickname for, for Henry, like Hank Aaron. Um, okay. Okay. I really enjoy the podcast and I appreciate your straightforward advice and approach to the test. Thanks. Uh, until a couple weeks ago, I hadn't been doing much in terms of LSAT studying, just listening to the podcast for about a month and occasionally doing a question of the day through an app on my phone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd be careful with those because they might not be real LSAT questions. Um, you know, so just be careful. Um, I've also been reading a lot about law school and the law profession, i.e. don't go to law school unless and the like. Um, Two things. Don't go to law school unless is a great book and you definitely should read it. Everyone should read it. It, You should be required to read it before you go to law school. Um, If we were going to change the law, Ben, like you already wanted to make these uh, unranked schools illegal. Or you were saying that it was it was illegal. No, I agree. It's pretty much possibly criminal. a criminal. Yeah, you said criminal. Um, we could. How about make a stipulation that in order to go to that school, people have to read and take a test, a quiz on the book. Don't go to law school unless. Yeah, you have to pass the quiz on about the book. this book. Yeah, yeah, and and if you can't read the book or if you can't pass the quiz, then you are not allowed to go to this school. I think the quiz is much more important than the book because <laughs> people could read the book and you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And you'd be like, do you really? Let's see. You and you, pa- you fail the quiz and it's just like, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so for one, everybody should read that book. And for two, Hank, you meant to put EG there, not IE. And that's the kind of thing that a lawyer's going to catch. <sighs> yeah. You really just shouldn't even – I think we've. I think I've mentioned this before. Yep. E.G. and uh, I, I.E. are two things that you should know how to read, but should never use because they're, <laughs> they're pompous and they get they get they get misinterpreted. And so, 
I think they're, I, I think they are sometimes convenient, but ever since you mentioned that you should never do that, I have been very, every time I catch myself doing it, I just go, mm, yeah, <laughs> there's probably an easier way. There's probably an easier way, but you know, Kirk Vonnegut, uh, Kurt Vonnegut hated um, semicolons. Wait, who's that? Vonnegut? Am yeah. Am I supposed what? to? What? What? As much as you read, Ben, you need to read some fiction. <clears throat> I'm going to give oh, you some. I hate f- fiction. I mean, the uh, book I'm reading right now is historical fiction, so I shouldn't say that. But boo. You need to read some science fiction. Okay, I'm um, looking this guy up. Oh, it doesn't even come up in Google. Whatever. Vonnegut? Yeah, I'm come looking on. it up. V O N N E G U T Vonnegut. V O N N E G U T. Oh yeah, Vonnegut. okay. Yeah, he looks like. I mean, he's our. He's like he's passed away. We don't even know about him anymore. Read, read Cat's Cradle. <laughs> Cat's Cradle. Okay. Yep. Got it. Okay. Um. <clears throat> anyway, he hated the semicolon. What do you think about the semicolon? Oh, I love the semicolon if it's okay, used good. correctly. Um, yeah. you t- it's all it is is it's a period. By the way, this is <laughs> free free usage advice for our users. The semicolon is a period, but it means that the two ideas are coming slightly. The two sentences that you could have separated with a period are closely enough related that you think that you should emphasize their connectedness. And a lot of people use them like to show contrast. Maybe say so and so thinks X semicolon. Um, but so and so thinks also thinks not X or something like that. You know, some mm-hmm. sort of like contrast or yeah. uh, just some two sentences that you think should be slightly closer together, but not so close that they are separated only by a comma. Yeah, and it it they uh, have to stand alone, so it means period and then a new sentence. Yes, it does. And it the does. two the two clauses have to be able to stand on their own as complete sentences. Mhm. And you'd never put semicolon and then the word and. Yep. Semicolon yeah. oh. already means and because it's period and then a new sentence. So there's like an implied and at the beginning of every sentence. You would right? do a, you would do an and for a comma, but not for a semicolon. Yeah. Correct. Semicolon and is always wrong. Also, um, semicolons yeah. come outside the quotation mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, and don't put IE. And yeah. <laughs> also, if you do, you're supposed to italicize it and put the periods in. Yeah. So, Oof. Yeah. Because now we're, now we're into like really like law school mode. Um, but uh, by the way, if you're not interested in this discussion, don't, just please don't go to law school. This is seriously. All they care about. <laughs> this is exactly all of law school. This is 100% exactly what law school is. When the, when the substance of the argument is beyond anyone's like comprehension, <laughs> they they just like resort to grammar fights. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um yeah, so EG would be would have been correct here because he's giving examples. Um Yeah. But he used IE instead, and then that's when you know all the lawyers in the room start making eye contact with one another, like this guy. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sorry, Hank. We're having a little bit of fun. IE um, by the way means that is. If you're just I, yeah, right. IE is we're say, trying to say it in a different way, which is not yep. correct here. Um, 
Okay, last weekend, I took the June 2007 test pretty much just out of curiosity to see how I would score and got a 164. I was pretty encouraged by this result, given what you guys say about how just a couple months of studying can improve one's score by 10 or more points. I want to score in the mid to high 170s, which seems pretty plausible given my starting score. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, 170-something is well within reach if you're starting from a 164. Yep. Um, as soon as you start talking about the high 170s, you do need to be a little realistic and realize that you're talking about a 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 10,000 kind of score. Yeah. And, you know, there's weird things happen at the limit, but uh, certainly from 164 to 170 something is uh, totally possible with a couple months of prep. Yeah. Uh, after doing your approach of one time section per day for a couple weeks, I'm consistently only missing zero to three per section. This seems pretty good. Yes, it does. The catch. I'm a sophomore in undergrad and don't plan on taking the LSAT until June of next year, 2018. I enjoy studying for the test and want to score as close to perfect as possible, but should I put the practice tests down and come back to them in a year? You'll likely say it depends. And there we see the comma outside of the quotation marks, which is incorrect. Hank, are you from the UK? Because if you're from the UK, then that's okay. Then we'll allow it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what they do in the UK. So it's different. But not here, buddy. This is an American podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You'll likely say it depends. But I just feel like the iterative process is so powerful that even if I only did a timed section a couple times a week, That could be pretty helpful. And then I could buckle down in the couple months before the test. Again, I appreciate the podcast. It's been fun and helpful to listen to while I'm working, riding the bus, or doing just about anything else. Thanks, Hank. Um, Yeah, I have have some advice. I think you have similar advice. Yeah, I would say... (laughs) First of all, keep in mind that the test is valid for at least your test result. Your score is a val- is valid for at least three years. And in most cases, the vast majority of cases, it's valid for five years. So if you're doing well, go take it, get it done with, and then move on. That's yeah. what I would say. Yeah. I, people sometimes, they like they think that putting a date a year out in advance is going to get them the best score. And I would push back on that. I, I would say... Hey man, you're doing well now. Things are going well now. Why not take it in? Because frankly, if he was registered for this June's test, I'd be like, "Yeah, man, take a shot at it. You're getting really close. Like, why? Why not?" Yeah. Um, but certainly September of this year. You know, what are you doing this summer, Hank? Because you could just decide to buckle down now, mm-hmm. this summer. And get yourself to your mid 170s score and take it in September and just have that in your pocket and then move on with the rest of your life. You know, do other fun stuff. You're in college. (laughs) Do, you know, move on to the next thing and and explore other stuff and just have this awesome LSAT score already in the books. Get your score and then start exploring medical marijuana. Get your score and then start exploring a career in medical marijuana (laughs) where you don't have to be a lawyer. Or I don't know, it just well take it and and whatever like let's say he gets a one seventy two or something right and then yeah. like a year from now he looks at the LSAT again he starts taking tests again he's like hey I think I can beat that I mean maybe this most cases if you get a one seventy two you should take it and run with it but maybe uh, Hank feels like he can do better than that and then he takes it again but 
if for some reason he can't or life gets busy, who knows what's going to happen. He's got that 172, which is an extraordinary score. Yeah. And he can just apply later. Shit happens in life, you know, and and uh, who knows what's going to happen, right? Like, you, you, there's so much crazy shit that's going to happen in your life. Like, you're going to get sick. People that you know are going to get sick. There are going to be car accidents. There's going to be, you know, it's not to be like morbid or whatever, but (laughs) whatever you're going to get, you're going to get this crazy job or internship opportunity, or you're going to get an opportunity to go travel in Europe or a year abroad, or you're going to meet some girl or guy or whatever. And you're going to want to go do some, you know, you're going to want to go to South America. I mean, because of life just gets busier. It's not going to get less busy ever. It's going to continually mm-hmm. get more busy forever. And, you know, sophomore and undergrad is a wonderful time to be studying for the LSAT, especially your summers while you're in college. Cause what else are you doing? You know, you're getting some crappy job working in a warehouse or something. Like I, I don't know. It's I, this, I think the time is now. And if you're enjoying it and doing well, I think you should just get on, get on the train and just, and just do it and get it over with. So I'd be looking at September LSAT and maybe December of this year LSAT as a backup. And then hopefully he's just done. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else for Hank? Uh, no, he did say that he, he, it's been fun to listen while he's working, riding the bus or doing just about anything else. And I was trying to think like, what else could you be doing? while you're listening to the podcast. And I was wondering if anyone out there has ever found a way to listen while they're swimming. Are there waterproof earphones? Yeah, man, I have them. Oh, you have them? Okay, so Mm -hmm. there we go. So hopefully listeners start working out and listening while they're swimming. Yeah, you can definitely work out. um, You can definitely commute. You can definitely – I like to do – when I I walk a lot, I walk and I ride my bike a lot. That's a good time for podcasts. Why do you walk, Nathan? I walk – because I am an old man and I need the exercise. And uh, also I walk just because I enjoy it. I've always okay. been a walker. I'm, it's like part of why I like living in cities. I just mm. love like the best thing in the world is to like walk across a city. Hmm. I truly enjoy it. Cool, man. Yeah. Um, should we do another one? Yeah, but you know what else Hank should do? Oh, yeah. He should go on iTunes and write us a review saying how much he likes the show. Hopefully he still likes us after we talked about his plan. After we busted him on his <laughs> grammar. <laughs> He's like the punctuation. Four stars. Yeah. <laughs> I used to like these guys. They were dicks to me when I wrote in. <laughs> All right. Next one. Yeah. So this says, good evening, Nathan slash Ben. My name is... Quote, Steve, obviously a pseudonym. I'm looking to get into a top law school or a large scholarship from a good regional school. Okay. So either pay to go to a top school or get a scholarship at a regional school. That sentence is broken because he didn't make the list properly. Like he didn't, he needed to put what the verb again. I'm looking to get into a top law school or... A large scholarship. He has a missing word there. Yeah. That's where the parallelism broke down. (laughs) (laughs) I graduated eight years ago in chemical engineering from a good engineering state school with a 3.35. 
I'm taking the June LSAT and I've been averaging in the range of 168 to 179. Wow. Typically lower, typically lower to mid 170s. I'm obviously shooting for high 170s, but if I can get a high 160 or low 170, I'd be okay. Okay, it's reasonable. Sounds good, Steve. I found out after I graduated that I have a narcolepsy, which definitely was, oh, after I graduated, that I have a narcolepsy, which definitely was a hindrance to my undergrad GPA. I slept in probably 95% (laughs) of my classes. Whoa. So narcolepsy is where you just fall asleep randomly? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I couldn't study without falling asleep, sometimes less than five minutes. Other times I could go for an hour or so. Wow, that's tough. I got tested after falling asleep in some pretty important meetings and my boss was not happy. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing like capitalism to solve our problems. Yeah. Get to work, buddy. Needless to say, since being diagnosed, I have seen a world of difference in my ability to focus and learn and my professional career has gone very well. Awesome. After leaving the job where my reputation was pretty much destroyed. Here are my questions. Will my GPA keep me out of being looked at by top schools if I get a low 170 or even high 170, 180? Short answer, no. Especially if you explain your situation. That's like a legit explanation, right? Yeah. And that's going to be like the most common accepted, understood explanation too. You went to a good engineering school and you got a 3.35. You could have had the highest GPA in your whole cohort if you got a 3.35 in some engineering programs. Yeah, that's not a bad GPA for someone who had narcolepsy. Yeah, no. So this is a place where you definitely need to write an addendum and point the committee's attention to the fact that 3.35 is not a bad GPA for your, you know, like, but put facts in there, right? Like yeah, put, facts. put what that ranks you at and maybe name a class or two that you took. And, you know, not, it's not like you're whining and asking for special treatment or whatever, but just show them that chemical engineering it was your major and that a 3.35 was actually a strong GPA in that major. Yeah. Do GPAs carry as much weight eight years after graduating if you obviously have had a career? Um, they still carry a lot of weight. That's the first number that they look at. I mean, your career is going to matter, but uh, GPA still matters a lot. Yeah, you have to get yourself in conversation with a good index number. And yeah, that 3.35 is going to weigh down your index number. Um, but a 170-something is going to significantly boost that index number. So you know, and, and that, by the way, is the very best way that you can explain, explain a low GPA. (laughs) Like people have all these excuses for their low GPA, (laughs) but then they have like a mediocre LSAT score to go with it. Yeah. And that's just not, you know, that's not going to carry a lot of weight. But if this dude comes with, Hey, listen, I'm a chemical engineer. I got a 3.35, but that's actually a good GPA. And then they look over into the LSAT column and they see your 174, but then they go, Oh yeah. All right. We, we believe you. Yeah. Say no more, you know, and, uh, and also same thing with like that old GPA. Yeah. They look at your eight year old GPA of 3.35 and your brand new shiny 174. And they also might more heavily weight the, the more recent thing, but you know, they're, they're probably not looking that close at your application. If you don't get yourself in the conversation uh, the 3.35 is going to be part of your index calculation. Yeah. Nothing you can do about that. 
Does engineering STEM carry any weight with law schools or make a lower GPA look any better? You betcha. Yeah, so many 100%. people. So many people take like, and I'm, I, I don't want to offend anybody here, but like these these degrees. Like, let's start with the easiest one to to knock, and that is like pre law. What the hell is a pre law degree? You know, and yeah. um, I'm sorry if you took English. That's awesome. There's a lot of things to learn there, but that is an easier degree than physics or yeah. <laughs> mechanical well, engineering. You just can't. You just can't get anything where there's a ton of subjectivity in the grading. You know, that's yeah. just it, those are inherently going to be softer on grades because. The professors, even if they're going to be strict, tough professors, like they want to be nice. And if you give it your best effort, it's just easy for them to, it's easier for them to give you, you know, grades that maybe you don't quite deserve in the sciences, in physics or whatever, there's right and wrong answers. And if you don't arrive at the right answers, they're not going to give you credit for that. Yeah. I also think there's, there's like, I mean, I'll probably get pushback for this, but I think there's, I think there are concepts like you said it's science there are things that you have to get your mind wrapped around that i don't feel like you have to get your mind wrapped around as much in say the humanities or whatnot there it's more about discussions and ideas and those ideas are not necessarily based in reality they're just more about like yeah, how people think about things. I mean, it's kind of like law school. I mean, one of that, that was one of the shockers when I got to law school. I was like, wait a sec. There's no right answer here. <laughs> it's just which argument is the most persuasive, but whether that's... For some, I, I had a really naive view when I went into it. I kind of felt like it was like... I mean, I'd studied econ, so I... Econ is sort of soft as well, but there is definitely an effort to try to make things, you know scientific to some yeah they quantify the things that can be quantified they're trying right they're trying to figure out what is actually true so there's this there's this effort at like let's figure out what's actually happening here in the economy or among people or whatever whereas in law school no one really cares about that it partly depends on what the um, morals are of the day like what what moral is more persuasive to that group of people which will change in the next 10 years. Yeah. Um so anyway, other than no on the continuing that thought, I mean, that's basically why I hated law school. In addition to I just don't want to work that hard, um I found law school to be like studying it was basically studying dogma. It wasn't like yeah. it, it was it's like pseudoscience. It's just mm-hmm. Well, we want the case to come out this way, so we're going to do all this complicated legal reasoning, and we're going to we're going to pretend as if we are scientists now, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. these law professors, and we've got these law journals and law reviews, and like we're we're very serious, you know. This is very very serious intellectual, you know. We, this, these are <laughs> we're analyzing the cases, and you know that we're we're proving that the case has to come out of this has to come out this way because of this analysis and uh, you know we're being very we're, we're being objective bullshit no you're not you decided what you wanted it to say you mm-hmm. decided what you wanted the outcome to be and then you 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 figured out a way to use the precedent in order to show what you wanted to show yeah. i mean that's the like whole development of constitutional law yeah so and that's why i in con law just hated it because i was like wait we're pretending that this is real we're pretending that this all this science actually went into it but there was no science there was just what we wanted the outcome to be no and exactly now we, we claim that this phrase means this when 
it, it's just it takes it's so convoluted to try to justify that. Yeah, if 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 you want a certain outcome and the precedent is on your side, then you cite it like no other. And if it's not, then you go back to the Constitution and you yeah. cite that like no other. <laughs> yeah, you just go and find what you want to find, and then you try to make your case as strong as you can. Yep, that that's the way we should think about things. But there is no right or wrong answer that eventually everyone has to come to Correct. and agree. Like in science, there's always disagreement, but people are slowly kind of coming on board. It's like, yeah, okay, um, yeah. natural selection seems to be a thing. I guess we're getting to that point, and um, now we're going to have to move on to the next issue, you know? <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I like to deal in reality, and I, yeah, I like to – I guess I, truth is important to me. Honest is, honesty is important to me. And so I, that's like it. I really – Wait, hold on. Those are two different things you realize, right? Mm, okay. But anyways, yeah, go ahead. So, well, uh, uh, maybe the honest search for truth is important yeah. to me. <laughs> okay, you know, uh, and that's one thing that lawyers, like real, some of the real lawyers that I know, like the 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 highly successful lawyers that I know, that's not as important to them. Um, they like winning, mm-hmm. and they like the arguing. And they like arguing, even if they don't believe in their position, you know, they, they just, they want to have a client, they want to have a case and they want to go win that case. And it has nothing to do with who objectively should be the winner. It just has to do with, can I make this case? But it's, it's kind of bizarre because they are, you know, proving they're proving that their client should win. (laughs) That's the position that they're going to take. Right. Like, Oh no, I have proved it. It's right here. Like the, my brief, the intention of my brief is to prove that my client wins. But in order to do that, you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics, ignoring all sorts of bad facts, ignoring all sorts of bad precedents and just building the best case you can. Um, I, it turns my stomach a little bit. I don't think I could ever do it. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, think about how it, uh, lawyers are, the, the lawyers that are glamorized in movies or storylines or whatever, the classic situation is you're given someone who has clearly committed a crime, murder, whatever, and the awesome, amazing turn, attorney in that story is like taking that case and figuring out the best way to get that person off, whether that's through some like – strategic backdoor dealing, whether that's through, look, this is what you're going to say when you're on the stand. And we all watch that and we go, oh, wow, look how, look how clever they were. Look how they, they maneuvered the system. Okay. What? That's what we're all cheering for. Like, (laughs) great. We, you, you admitted that this person is hundred percent guilty. And now it's all about how good are you at getting someone off who is guilty? That's not the purpose of the system, but that's how we, that's how we roll. Yeah, well, that's the constitutionally defined role of a lawyer, right? I yeah, mean, that's just what uh, that's what a, a lawyer is supposed to zealously advocate for you, their client, and um, it's it's not about like when pe- I think a lot of times when people say, you know, I love the law, mm-hmm. what they mean is they like the like they they like the the search for truth, and, yeah. And, but that's not what law is. <laughs> law is not at all the search for truth. 
mm-hmm. or justice or anything like that. Law is an adversarial encounter between two conflicting parties and one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, it's like educate. It's like politics for highly educated, smart people. Yes. It's highly politicized. Um, and it's just, it's to me, it's intellectually interesting, but it's also intellectually, uh, dirty. Yeah. Okay. On that note, Steve, (laughs) (laughs) this is going to be either our most popular episode or our least popular episode. (laughs) I don't know. I think our comments on accommodations certainly garnered some. Oh, that's the least popular episode. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. So his last question is, is narcolepsy is, is the narcolepsy issue something an addendum is good to use to point out that I feel like, yes, absolutely. Um, from what, listening to your podcast, it sounds like a much better place to point it out than a personal statement. Oh, uh. well, you know, let me just, I, my, I can go either way. So I'm not as, it kind of comes down to whether he has something to say in his personal statement. That's more important than that. Right. And like worth mentioning and worth, he, this is not, I don't think I'm having a hard time seeing how that's the, okay. If his narcolepsy is 100% cured that and if this cure for narcolepsy is somehow inherent to who you are or we're going to like see some aspect of your personality that we wouldn't have seen any other way then i can I, then okay write about narcolepsy but i i would consider not even mentioning it at all because it's a reason for somebody to worry about you Wait, wait, wait. What, you, you're saying he shouldn't mention the narcolepsy thing at all? Potentially, because just hear me out. Okay. I want to make, well, I want to make a simple case to these committees that I am an excellent candidate for law school. I should go to your school. I'm going to kick ass there. And to explain the 3.35, I think you go chemical engineering. Here's what a 3.35 means in chemical engineering and get out. I don't think you need to also muddy the waters with the narcolepsy issue. Now, if he was a political science major and had a 3.35, then I would be probably making the narcolepsy case. But he's a chemical engineering major with a 3.35. And I think it might be simpler for the committee to just look at, hey, 3.35 chemical engineering. Yeah, his LSAT score is a more is a, just a better indicator. Let's move on. I don't think we need 3.35 and here's my justification, which was engineering, but, and here's my other excuse, which is narcolepsy. I feel like it potentially muddies the case and I feel like it might be like protesting too much. Um, I don't know. What do you think about all that? Well, I see your concern because is it raising like a problem that they're going to have to deal with? But because he says, since being diagnosed, I've seen a world of difference in my ability to focus and learn and my professional career has gone very well. If that's something that he can convey quickly and uh, show hopefully with facts in some way, shape or form, then I think this could actually be a good thing because if the the 3.35 is – it's it's understandable for an engineering degree, but it would be even more understanding if it if there was this problem that has since been solved, and thus they don't have to deal with it. But it does explain the lower GPA. Yeah, I'm. I, I could go either way on it. I'm not 100. I I might write it both ways and take a look at what you've got. Mm-hmm. 
I, I just feel like <clears throat> narcolepsy is not, you might not mention it on the first date. <laughs> like <laughs> there's only one date here, right? <clears throat> well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So maybe you don't, I just, it's like not exactly putting your best foot forward, even though you've, you know, if you've, if you've totally solved it and if you've learned from it and if now, you know, you kick ass and you want to talk about it, like I could, but it just feels like maybe it needs more room to fully explain it. And I could actually see it being funny and a very interesting, like awesome personal statement. If it's like mm-hmm. overcoming narcolepsy, I could see that being fantastic. Mm-hmm. But in an addendum, you're supposed to be keeping it pretty short. And it just, it's like, they're going to look at it for 15 seconds and now they're going to think you're a narcoleptic. That's my concern. It's just like, it's one more problem. And mm. Yeah, they could buy it. They could totally buy it. But they could also be like, eh, the narcoleptic guy? Nah, let's do (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Just a quick search. I I don't know. Obviously, Hank. Is this Hank still? No, this is Steve. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Sorry, Hank. Sorry, Steve. Um, Steve knows a lot more about it than I do, than we do. Uh, Yeah. It looks like there are treatments for it, so... If it is, maybe maybe that's why he's he's done so much better. I mean, there's probably both treatments and like coping treatments, right? Like, how do you deal with this now that you know yeah. that you have it? I my my gut is to say, hey, hopefully you can say that all very quickly and say that in a, an addendum, and thus your focus of your application is not on that, and thus you don't come across as this, you know, crying. Yeah narcoleptic <laughs> yeah hey steve i will offer you a free service which i i do provide this service to my students um if you would like to share me your personal statement about narcolepsy i would love to read a personal statement about narcolepsy and make quick comments on it um the best way to do that is to just share it with me on google drive but email me nathan at foxlset.com and i will be happy to read and comment um, ben, you're welcome to join on that read and comment if you have the time and interest. Um, well, to, to be honest, I'd actually be much more interested in an addendum. Addendum about narcolepsy? Yeah, because I'd like because that's what I would think I would do if I were him and I were okay. mine. So I would like so <laughs> depending on what you decide to do, Steve, send a personal statement to Nathan or a, an addendum to me or heck to both of us. But um, I'd like to see a short, concise. I guess it's the same thing, but argument. Um, laying out yeah. what happened in factual terms, get to the point, show it in a good light and end it. That's yeah, what I one, would say. One paragraph, if you're doing it as an addendum, mm-hmm. like a short paragraph, preferably, and a full personal statement, like two pages in which you give us a little vignette, make us laugh, you know, teach us something about narcolepsy. Yeah. No, that, we, would, that we could be a very, about <laughs> no, but that could be an awesome personal statement. You know, I learned something about narcolepsy. I learned something about you. I see that you've overcome it. You make me chuckle once or twice you win. So mm-hmm. I'd love to see both of those. And yeah, we, we will, uh, we'll read and comment and uh, maybe bring back something about it to the show. Yeah. Sounds if good. you like no pressure. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm guessing we should probably end it there. Huh? Yeah. This was a, a epic, uh, episode. Thank you very much, everybody, Steve and, uh, everybody else for writing. Um, sorry for busting your balls when you write into the show, but I guess you've, you know, by now that that's what you're going to get. 
Um, yeah, we are we are taking applications for our um, co-hosts. Um, you can just send them to Ben at strategyprep.com. <laughs> yes, that's smart, Ben. You need to think ahead <laughs> for sure. Hey, actually, I just ha- I had this idea. Um, I was watching some podcast, and the guys were on YouTube. So it's like YouTube is recording them. This is the last thing I'd want is to have uh, us or at least me being recorded as we're talking but on camera you mean yeah on camera yeah. but is this like a is this like a thing are we like are we going into the past are we like cave podcasters because we don't have a youtube channel that's also if, showing our you know the behind the scenes what really happens at the podcast you know Trump I, I, I know a lot of podcasts do do that like have the the video feed um but you know you're not going to be looking at that while you're swimming you're not going to be looking at that while you're driving (laughs) i'm not going to be looking at that while i'm walking around town or on my bicycle Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. furthermore who wants to look at our faces just talking the whole like no way this is a i I think when we're gonna we're gonna stay in the stone ages if i have anything to do about it but your new new host that you recruit might (laughs) might have a different idea great hey you know what yeah we might as well put it out there uh, we are in the process, uh, sadly, of looking for a new editor for the show because um, uh, my good friend Andy and uh, our faithful editor for the last year plus is uh, moving on to greener pastures. And we're going to be sad to see her go, but um, the show must go on and we need a replacement editor. So if you are a podcast editor, or if you know a podcast editor, or if you would like to be a podcast editor, uh, you can email us help at thinkingelsat.com with your suggestions. If you've listened this far, um, you get bonus credit for, <laughs> for consideration as the new editor for the show. So let us know, uh, if you have any help on that. Damn. It's the beginning of the end. That's sad. I know. Um, no, no one's going to be <laughs> enticed to actually listen to the podcast anymore because the notes are the, the show notes, notes will just be, you know, Ben and Nathan talked about. Yeah, big, sh- big shoes to fill on the uh, show notes. But, well, hopefully um, that's where you're at. OK, cool. Yeah, we knew we couldn't keep Andy forever. She's always been destined for bigger and better than our little show. So, yeah, she did say she was going to continue listening to the show, which warmed my heart. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I think that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Please tell a friend, please rate us on iTunes, do all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, we will uh, talk to you shortly. Yeah. Thanks. See ya.